Hello America, brand new day, and another Daily Answer, your host, Mark Dunnigan. In this episode, I want to talk about some of my very first encounters with Scripture, with the Bible. I, I grew up in a home where now and then we, w- w- we would go to a religious service. There was a family Bible in the house, but it just kind of was out there on a table and no one ever picked it up and read it and i had never read it also i remember going to vacation bible school and hearing some bible stories and then when i was in public school about maybe once a month a lady would pick us up the parents had the sign off on it and we would go and kind of hear a bible story and sing maybe a song or two but i want to want to talk about some of my very first encounters with uh, with scripture one was we were at the local episcopal church and we showed up on a sunday early enough for bible study when the adults would have their own class and the kids would go in the back and i specifically remember the table at which we were sitting and the teacher was talking about noah and the ark and we had a little picture to color and all my co-classmates are coloring their picture and as the teacher tells the story, the teacher interrupted and said, oh, by the way, none of this ever happened. Okay. Now, my classmates didn't seem to notice that. They're slobbering and drooling and still coloring their pictures. But I'm going like, whoa, 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 what was that? Rewind. Because am I giving up my precious Sunday playtime where I could be building forts and running the neighborhood, etc.? to be somewhere and to be spending my time on something that's not even true, all right? And so after that, I think after that, I kind of put my foot down and I'm not going. I mean, if it's not true, if it never happened, why should I go? Now, unfortunately, that teacher was really misinformed. Um, Not only is the story of Noah in the Bible, but every culture has a flood story. That makes perfect sense if we're all descended back to Noah and his sons, because no one's going to forget that one, you know, where the whole world is wiped out except eight people. Man, you can remember that. Every culture has that. And the stories are very similar. A boat, uh, man has sinned, violated God's rule. Uh, we have some birds in the boat. We have they end up on a mountain. Uh, even the North America, even the Native Americans here in the Pacific Northwest had a definite flood story or numerous flood stories. The other thing is how to explain all the fossils. I mean, things just don't die and become a fossil. Something has to die and be quickly buried for it to fossilize. And we have fossil graveyards where millions and millions of animals all died simultaneously and were all buried. How do you explain that one? Then, yes, even scientists recognize at some point in the past, in Earth's history, there was some sort of worldwide cataclysmic event that pretty much instantly wiped out 99% of all life on the planet and buried much of it under a layer of sediment. Now, number of people aren't Christians are trying to argue that a meteor at some point slammed into us like 65 million years ago. Okay, but the Bible's always had the accurate answer. It's Noah's flood. You go to the Grand Canyon, you're not seeing something cut by slow, a slow meandering river. You are seeing the result of massive runoff. Just go there, eyeball it, 
give it the eye test. The other thing is, okay, what are we going to do with Jesus? If the flood is not true, if it's just a myth and never happened, does that mean that Jesus is a myth? Because Jesus endorsed the flood. In fact, Jesus will endorse, it, it, you go through the Gospels and Jesus endorses the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. He mentions those two cities being destroyed. All right. He mentions Lot's wife. He mentions Noah and building the ark and the flood, Matthew chapter 24. He mentions Adam and Eve being from the beginning, not millions of years after the beginning, but from the beginning in Matthew chapter 19. You know, all the major events of Genesis chapters 1 through 11 that so many people say, well, that's just myth. That's not real history. Well, wait a minute. The New Testament pretty much endorses every single one, every single chapter there. It talks about Abel. It talks about Cain. It talks about Cain killing his brother, 1 John chapter 3. And Abel offered his sacrifice by faith, Hebrews chapter 11. No building the ark. Repeatedly, Hebrews 11, 1 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 2 deals with all of that. And it's all dealt with as a real historical event. All right. So you're going to have to talk out, toss Jesus out as the son of God, as the savior of the world, etc. if you reject the flood, because he endorsed it. He viewed it as real. The other thing is, if you toss out the Bible, well, then you're going to have to toss out about everything written in the last 3,000 years, including music and art, because much of it is based on a biblical world view. You're not going to understand most of the literature of the last 3,000 years, if you just say, we're going to ignore what's in the Bible and not even read it. The other thing, here was another misunderstanding I had. I really couldn't get into the Bible stories like David and Goliath because someone had put in my head, or, or maybe I'd put it there, is that there was history, like real history, which would be Second World War, Civil War, etc. That's real history. And then there was Bible history. And those were two different histories. And of course, th that's a very naive concept, because as you go back in the Bible, you'll find that the story that's in the Bible, what God chose to record, is intertwined with other nations. And it's intertwined with, well, historical characters that you find in secular history, like Nebuchadnezzar, like Cyrus, Pontius Pilate. Not only that, but Archaeology just keeps confirming that the Bible, when it comes to its description of places, people, events, geography, etc., is always accurate. And each archaeological discovery just confirms that. I mean, for many years, unbelievers denied the existence of certain, oh, like the Hittites. Well, we don't find them in the other, any other source any other document the bible is the only book that mentions the hittites well they were they were an imaginary people well not so fast that's not true uh, people question riding in the time of moses now we know it existed there people question the existence of the hittites they were a major empire we now realize people question the existence of pontus pilate but we have inscriptions outside the bible that referred to him as a real historical person all right so 
the Bible is historically accurate. I was really impressed when I first picked up the book of Luke and read the first four verses. And Luke is writing as a historian. That is, I've, I've traced everything accurately. I'm laying it out for you. There are eyewitnesses to these events. People have been interviewed. And I want you to know the exact truth about what you believe. That is, the biblical writers lived in a world where there were fables, yet they clearly point out they're not writing fables. And Peter would emphasize that in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. The other misconception I had is that, yes, at some point in the past, Jesus had died for our sins, but everyone is now okay. Kind of had this idea that if you were born in America, you're automatically a Christian. You know, that is, yes, there was a sin problem in the past, and but Jesus came and he solved all that and he died. And I guess just by being born, you're locked into the cure, you know, that you're okay now. Uh, there's no need to take care of your life. There's no need to repent or whatever. There's no danger of hell, maybe except you're a really, really, really wicked person like Hitler. But outside of that, the sin problem is all taken care of. And so kind of like all those problems are now solved. The other thought I had a little bit as I got older, particularly like in high school, was that the Bible is a book of mysterious sayings. I'd never picked it up, cracked it open, read it, but I kind of had this idea that the Bible was probably filled with statements like, what is the sound of one hand clapping? Or maybe like trick questions. You know, if an airplane crashes on the border between the United States and Canada, where do you bury their survivors? Okay. And it's, you know, or what, like if a rooster's on a pitched roof and lays an egg, which direction does the egg roll? Well, roosters don't lay eggs. I just thought that the Bible was a book of a whole lot of like trick stuff or mysterious sayings that did not make any sense. It was just this book of mysteries. So, I am, I'm, I'm around 20 years old or, and um, I pick up the Bible and start reading it for the first time. And here are some things that really, here's some things that really struck me here. Here's my first impression of scripture. First of all, how clear it was. And it was talking right to me. And there was really no question about, like, well, what does that mean? It was, for the most part, very self-explanatory. In fact, it was it was too clear. And I think uh, various writers have talked about that, that um, it's, it's not that I read the Bible and I'm bothered by the things I don't understand. It's I read the Bible and I'm bothered by what is all too clear. Sermon on the Mount, I think I started in Matthew, and Sermon on the Mount starts in chapter 5. And by chapter 5, well, I was, in a, I was definitely in trouble reading it as a non-Christian. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said you should not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Man, I may have said, well, all of a sudden, all of a sudden it was yikes. And all of a sudden it was, wait a minute, that standard is a lot higher than I thought it was. I came from a culture, no harm in looking, okay? Joke, joke, no harm in looking. Everyone looks, okay? You're expected to look. That's what young men do. How about verse 31? It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That was kind of the, uh, 
moral standard the Pharisees had. The Pharisees went back to the Old Testament and misinterpreted it, misinterpreted it. And primarily in Deuteronomy 24, they thought there was just this green light for divorce there for any cause at all. And that's the culture I was growing up in. You know, no fault divorce. You're not getting along, you know, grab your marbles and your TV and leave and your stereo and your albums and uh, good luck to you. And you just find somebody else. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity or sexual immorality, that is, she cheated on you. But if she didn't cheat on you, it says, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That is, you're in, a, you're in an adulterous relationship. And it's like, wow, wow, because I was surrounded by people that were putting their spouses away and no one had cheated on them. And I was surrounded by people you know, from high school on in my 20s, who uh, were marrying people that had been divorced and did not have scriptural cause to get out of that divorce. And I'm going like, well, I'm going like, why isn't anyone talking about these passages? I'd been in churches before. I didn't, I'd, I'd kind of been in Bible studies before, and I'd never heard these passages discussed. Another passage would be kind of like 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, where Paul says, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. If you practice the following things, if you, if you remain in the following behaviors, you're not going to heaven. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators had to look that word up. What's fornication? Well, that's sex outside of marriage. Uh-oh. Okay. What, you know, why isn't anyone talking about that? Nor idolaters, adulterers, effeminate homosexuals. That just about the time in my early 20s, you had some rumblings that people are saying, it's it's not that bad. It's okay. It's an acceptable thing to do. And right here, like, oh, not according to God. Thieves, the covetous, that's greedy people, drunkards. You're not allowed just to let your hair down and get drunk now and then. That's a sin. That keeps you out of heaven. Revilers or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And again, why isn't that being preached about? Why aren't churches dealing with those particular topics, particularly among the denominations, the big popular churches? Why weren't they having a Bible study in those passages? And I thought like, well, probably because if they did, they'd lose half their members. <laughs> you know, like, that, that's probably why they're not addressing those passages. The other passage that really caught my attention was Matthew chapter 7. Verse 13, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there's many there that are, you know, on that path. Then it says, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And I was kind of like that. I wasn't living right, but I believed in God. And I believed that Jesus had lived and died and died for our sins, you know, and I, I and, and I would have said, do you believe in Jesus? And I would say, well, yeah, yeah, I, I believe that Jesus exists, you know, that he's out there and uh, celebrate his birthday every year. And that that passage really got my attention. It, it, it said to me, you know what? That's what you are. You're just one of those person out there going like, oh, yeah, I'm a good person. I believe in God and I believe in Jesus. But, you know, got to have your fun now and then. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, and this one caught my attention, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name 
and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles. Those are people that are very religious people. Those are people that would claim to be Christians. All right. And I do denominations like that. I knew denominations where the people were claiming to cast out demons and they were claiming to do miracles. I went to some denominational services like that, that they said, yeah, we're speaking in tongues and etc." And then I would declare to them, I never knew you depart from me. And I'm going like, whoa, not only am I in trouble, but all these people out there that are religious, but they're not really doing what the Bible says. Well, they're not going to make it either. And again, why isn't anyone addressing that issue? So all of a sudden, I realized that God's standard was a lot higher than, than the standard I was hearing preached in your typical mainline denomination. The thing that equally struck me is like what was in the Bible. Started reading it. I saw that moral standard, incredibly high standard. But also I saw in Isaiah 40, verse 22, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Well, I know when Columbus sailed and I know I know what people thought prior to that uh, as far as the surface of the earth. And right there, centuries before Columbus ever comes along, millennium before that happens, here is, here is Isaiah saying that the earth is a circle. Well, how did Isaiah know that? I mean, he, he was not in some NASA program. He didn't go out there and walk on the moon and look back and go, yep, it's a circle. How did Isaiah know that? And, and it dawned on me, well, only, only the creator would actually know that at that point in human history. I also was impressed when I read through the instructions in the Bible and said, you know what? That is the answer. When, when I read like the instructions about marriage and like in verse 25 of Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself, himself up for it. When I started reading kind of like the way that a Christian is really supposed to live and behave, versus just like a religious person or a Lord, Lord believer, how a real Christian behaves, it dawned on me that's the answer. I mean, if everyone lived like that, our social problems would vanish overnight. There'd be no crime. You wouldn't have to lock your doors, no drug addiction, etc. All children would be raised in a good, solid home. You know, marriages would stay together if people just I think that's the real test. That's the real test of a truthfulness of any sort of ideology or worldview. If everyone practiced it, would the world get a lot worse or would the world get a lot better? With Christianity, I think it's clear, genuine Christianity. I'm not talking about just religious stuff, and I'm not talking about stuff that just out there, this kind of religious stuff in the denominations. I'm talking about someone actually living according to the teachings of Christ in the New Testament. If everyone did that, would the world improve or would the, would the world become a disaster? Then... Then I was struck by the following. First, in my 20s, I read the Bible through. I just read it through. You know, took nine months or so. I'm just going to read the entire Bible through. All right. And I was very impressed with what was in it. Very surprised by what was in it. The pre-scientific foreknowledge and the high moral standard. And it just like, this makes sense. This would work. Obviously, this would work if, if, if people practice it. This is the answer. But finally, there's something else I was struck with. What was not in it? 
I remember finishing up the book of Revelation and closing last chapter, chapter 22, closing the Bible. I'd read it all through and said like, I read through the whole Bible and particularly the whole New Testament, the covenant that we're under today, the covenant in which we have the church and Christians. Okay. And guess what? I saw zero denominations. I didn't see any of the hierarchy and structure or worship service that you find in the denominations. I didn't see any praise teams or like bands. I didn't see, I didn't see the Pope. I saw no office, no qualifications for an office like that. I saw, I saw like no monastic movements like nuns or, or, uh, you know, celibate priest. I didn't see any of that. I, I didn't see it the religious traditions that are out there in many denominations. I didn't see like a Christmas service or an Easter service. Um, you know, I, I saw actually none of that. I saw none of these religious man-made holidays, man-made church structure and hierarchy. I didn't see like conventions. I didn't see like state and national headquarters. I saw none of that. Now, I did see a church that Jesus established. I saw that. I saw that G Jesus is the sole head of the church, Matthew 16, 18, and Ephesians 1, 20 through 23. I see that the church follows his teachings, the true church does. And I find that we're judged by his teachings, not by the culture. And I find that his teachings will still be the standard by which we will judge by at the last day, that time and culture don't change anything. John chapter 12, verse 48. That's what I found in some of my first encounters with scripture. Have you encountered scripture yet? Pick up your Bible today and start reading it. I think you'll be amazed. This is Mark Dunnigan. This was another episode of The Daily Answer. And hopefully this episode gave you some answers and not more questions. Until next time, See you in the funny papers. <laughs>